Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. You can sit right up here if you want. Marina, you too. Maybe not that close. No, I'm just kidding. (laughs) Today we're going to explore the topic of Shila Paramita, the perfection of conduct, the perfection of morality, the deepening of our understanding of ethics, But also, this is prajna paramita practice. So that means it's not just understanding ethics, it's going beyond how we understand ethics. Which I like to say is uh, embodying ethics until it's so close and so personal um, that you can't even see it. Because as soon as I say ethics, we have all kinds of ideas about like, You get very Victorian, probably, or you get very rebellious against the Victorian idea of rules. Um, But before we jump in, uh, a few things. So the first is, uh, I just want to say how much I appreciate everybody's practice. Um, I can feel everybody dropping in more today, and um, I hope you can feel it uh, amongst yourselves also. Um, Not just in the stillness of this room, Uh, or in um, the slow efficiency of walking meditation, Um, but uh, just also in how we go about being on the property and how we eat together and uh, how we are with each other. Um, And I'll also say, this is a really hard practice. Like, if you're really going to put this in the center of your life, which is my hope, Um, you'll start to see that this is a renunciate practice. So uh, the more you practice, the more you're going to see how you get tight, and the more you're going to learn how to let go. And uh, that's really, really hard. And so because it's really hard, it's really important as you practice 
that you're very light and you have a sense of humor and that you enjoy the company of other people. So uh, if you wonder, you know, this is all so intense for me. Why is Michael making all these jokes? You know, It's because, like, it's really hard. <laughs> you know. And sometimes you might feel when you're practicing, if only I could get comfortable, <laughs> then I'd be able to really practice, like the person beside me. Or you might say, if only I could just stop thinking, then I'd be able to like really practice. Which is basically saying, if only the conditions of my life were different, uh, then I'd be happy. Um, but that's not how we go about things uh, in this tradition. Our practice is to um, have an attitude in our hearts of not leaving anything out. Whatever shows up, um, we're not going to fragment it, we're not going to split it up. We're going to allow it into our hearts and we're going to breathe with it. You hear me saying this again and again and again. But actually to like keep training in that. Sometimes giving a talk is like deja vu. You know, I sit here and I'm like, I know I've said this before. <laughs> but I actually need to train in this too. The Buddha carried one alms bowl. And every morning after practice, he got up and he went uh, into the town and he uh, begged for food. And whatever he was given in his alms bowl is what he ate. And monks uh, all over Asia still do this practice. It's a really beautiful practice to see. If you go to Thailand, you see them doing this at sunrise. If you go to Japan, you see them getting on the train, going out into different neighborhoods and going for alms. You could try doing this in Manhattan, <laughs> like going from bank tower to bank tower. But I don't know if they'll give you a free lunch. <laughs> but the point is, is that the Buddha had one bowl, and whatever he got, that's what he worked with. And I think nowadays, our alms bowl is our body, and our heart, and our mind. Whatever shows up, you say, this is my life. This is my life right now. And you can probably see in your sitting practice how often you're like, this isn't my life. <laughs> this is not my beautiful wife. <laughs> Actually, I don't have that feeling. <laughs> when you get that your ordinary life right now is sacred, then you don't separate from yourself. When you get that your ordinary existence right now is sacred, even your distractions, even your habits and your addictions, they're all sacred, then you wake up. What a blessing. 
And then you find that when confusion arises, or when you find you're uh, swimming in grief, or you find you're overwhelmed with pain, you develop this new attitude where you can say, okay, this is my life. And you can get closer to what's showing up. So this is my current theory of practice, is that the practice is saying, let go, let go, come closer. And you're saying, I can't, I won't. And then the practice says again, let go, come closer. Can you hear that voice? Let go, come a little closer to your experience. And then your ego is like, no, no, no. But it's kind of ridiculous, because what is that ego that's always saying, no, 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 I can't do it? That ego is just like reinforcing your version of who you want to be and think you should be. I remember being younger and being on retreat, and one day walking out of the temple and thinking and saying to myself, every thought that I have is about me. This was like the craziest insight. Like, I don't know if any of you have ha ever had this experience, but like if you really examine every single thought you have, even about other people, it all somehow has to do with creating an identity for yourself. Maybe for some people this is very exciting. For me, this is like really depressing. It's like, whoa, wow. So our practice is just to keep harmonizing our breathing body with what's showing up. Whatever's showing up, you just harmonize your breathing body with that as it changes. You might think that if pain shows up, you should just get really tense so you can get through it. But that's not our way. Our way is like, the harder it gets, the softer the breathing gets. So it's like the more intense, the softer the medicine. So if your breathing is the medicine, when things are really shaky, when things are really intense, the breath needs to just get so soft. It's not usually how we think about getting through something. And this is the paradox of our meditation posture, is that you want to keep a really controlled posture. A really controlled posture, but you're controlling the posture to let go of control. You see? So you're keeping a really controlled posture, but then the inner body is really, really calm. From the tongue, both sides of the throat, the pericardium, all the tiny muscles around your respiratory diaphragm. It's all so calm, all the way through your pelvic floor, down into the earth, so calm. Even if certain muscles have to turn on to keep you upright, and even if those muscles change as your posture changes during the day or during the retreat, the inner body is really soft. And then you can, feel the you can feel the wide field that I was talking about yesterday. So whatever comes in is there in a calm and wide and nourishing field. 
And the field is not just the breath, and the field is not just like the literal field here. The field is also sangha. Something difficult moves through you, let it move through this whole room. It's not that personal. There's probably no grief that you feel that someone else in this room hasn't felt. Sure, it can feel like only I've had this experience, but actually, you should come sit in the interview room. You wouldn't believe the kind of stories that are in this room. So, we all hold the space for each other. Let me sum up. We haven't even gotten to the good part yet. We're still just talking about technique. So first of all, um, be aware of your breathing body all the time. All the time. You're picking up the spoon for uh, tomato sauce for your polenta, and you take a deep inhale. Even if halfway up you're like, I'm allergic to tomatoes. <laughs> then you exhale and you put it down. <laughs> Second is uh, be aware of the tactility of, of breathing. So be aware of all the tiny tactile sensations that we call breathing. Because sometimes what happens is you say to yourself, oh, I'm aware of breathing, but it's just a word, right? It becomes just like a word because you're used to it. It can become mechanical. So you want to be aware of all the little sensations that we're calling breathing. And the last thing is just be aware of your experience without grasping. Make contact with what's, holding up, what's coming through you without grasping. And this is Dana Paramita. Is letting things come in and letting them go. Yesterday we talked about giving and receiving. Seeing meditation practice this way. If something comes up that's really hard to bear, ask for help. Say to your breath, I really need help with this. Imagine I'm sitting beside Caitlin and I'm sitting and the timekeeper by mistake goes 10 minutes late and your knees are hurting. And so I'll say, oh, I'm going to get some support from Caitlin. I feel her sitting really still. Or the person beside you is like shifting around a lot. And you can tell, oh, you know, they're a little uncomfortable. So you sit really still and you give them support. That's Sangha medicine. Mm -hmm. So even if the giving and receiving is silent, it's still giving and receiving. The most important point is that you're training your heart. And why this is also important is because the ecological system that we live in is very fragile. Our communities these days are very fragile. Nuclear families, because of their design, are very vulnerable and almost impossible to maintain. And so it's really important to see that everything we do matters. How you speak 
matters. How you think about things matters. Everything you do makes a difference. Every, this is called karma. Everything you do makes a difference. And everything you think and feel has consequences. The poet Basho says this really beautifully. This is his definition of karma. This is a wonderful poem. If you ever get a dog, this would be a really good name for your dog, Basho. Don't you think that would be a good name for a dog? The temple bell stops ringing, but the sound keeps coming out of the flowers. Say it again. You know our temple bell over here? <laughs> I'm pointing at Jen. You know our temple bell over here? Yeah. The temple bell stops ringing, but the sound keeps coming out of the flowers. Isn't that beautiful? It's like Suniti says during the movement. Um, okay, stop, and now feel the echo. I would like to say that to people, you know, in their relationships. Okay, before you go to bed, stop and feel the echo of how you spoke today, how people spoke to you. You know how like you floss before bed? It's like a practice that you do. Maybe before bed, we should all do this. Like feel, where was I bruised today? Who did I bruise today? <laughs> and if you think that you go to bed and everything's like really clean and you did well, you don't understand karma. <laughs> so mindfulness practice, to sum up, is not just about how we are in our own experience. It's also, and, and, and finding like inner peace and pleasant feelings. It's, it's really about our conduct. It has everything to do with our conduct how we live with other people, how we contribute to the world within and around us, how we act with our bodies internally and externally, how we act with our words externally, but also internally, and how we work with our mind internally and externally. There's a lot of treasures down the road of concentration practice. I've been there. I can tell you all about it. If you keep practicing and you really work on getting calm, you can get really concentrated. And it's so pleasurable. And some people get really into that in their practice. And I always say to people, you should get addicted to that for just two or three years. Because um, it brings, uh, first of all, an experience of one's body that's really safe and really calm. Concentration also starts to show us that nothing really belongs to me and mine. And these are some of the benefits of concentration. But just trying to get really concentrated can't make you free. Patanjali says this in the Yoga Sutra. The Buddha said it over and over again. 
Just states of concentration can't make you free. So just going in, 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 you can't get free. But it's, it's great, so don't think that that's bad. It's really great. And the other end of the spectrum is people who go into the world and rely on money or cultural treasures to keep them interested and entertained and grounded. That too is also a dead end. Or I would actually say it differently. It's not just a dead end. It's a kind of starvation. The pop song is so good, makes you so happy, and then after two weeks, like you can't deal with it anymore. And if it's playing in the store, you leave the store. Unless it was recorded in Delhi or Dublin. So the way I think about this is that practice has three angles. One angle is um, turning away from the world. And we have to do that sometime. Coming on retreat can kind of be like that. Right? Like, just like leave behind all that stuff. And you know the stuff I'm talking about. Just leave it behind. And there's like a separation process around that. And, you know. Like nowadays, one of the big separations is like, what do you do with yourself when you have free time and you don't have your phone? You know? Can everybody feel that kind of like detoxing that happens when it's just like having a break from checking? You know? um, so one aspect of practice is turning away from the world. Another aspect of practice is um, using that separation from the world to then tune into the world. Because it's a funny thing to say we've gone on a retreat where as you're here, you start to realize, wow, I'm actually not retreating at all. I'm actually so much more in tune with my life in some strange way. And then the third aspect of practice is weaving those together. And we'll talk about that as the retreat goes on. And my interest is trying to stay at the conjunction of those three aspects. And I think the way to do this is to always keep your awareness in your body. Always aware of your posture. Your motto could be everything is a yoga posture. Everything that you do is an opportunity for mindfulness practice. If you're able to stay grounded in the body when your mind uh, becomes calm, then you learn a really important bodhisattva skill, which is how to feel aversion and how to feel what's unpleasant and how to breathe with what's unpleasant. Because the greatest cause of unethical conduct is not being able to feel unpleasantness. I'm going to say it again. The greatest cause of unethical conduct is not being able to feel what's unpleasant. And hostility comes when you can't bear what's unpleasant. On the other side of the spectrum, our poorest ethical choices come from attachment 
which is not being able to stop ourselves from consuming what's pleasurable. So on the one hand, we have what's unpleasant and not being able to inhale what's unpleasant. And on the other hand, we have what's really pleasant and not being able to stop ourselves. Not in a repressive way, but in a way that's grasping. It's not free. If you're caught in the grip of attraction, you lose mindfulness of the body. You lose your body. You're dissociated. A really good example of this is lust. When you feel lust, it feels so good. You feel lust, and nowadays, because of Tinder and whatever, lust is like on lots of people's minds. But actually, when a meditator starts paying more attention to lust, you start to realize lust is not really as good as you thought. And the reason is, is because when you feel lust, it owns you. It's not actually as pleasurable as you might think, because it's compulsive. One of the ones that I have to work with a lot uh, is worry. I'm a worrier. This is the fault of my parents, <laughs> grandparents. <laughs> My friend, who's an academic of Indian philosophy, he told me that the reason why in India they created the whole theory about uh, past lives is to just get people's parents off the hook. <laughs> so you just can't blame everything on your parents. <laughs> Isn't that so good? So parents, you should really teach your kids about past lives. Like even if you don't believe in that, you should just teach them about past lives and your relationship will be much better. When, I, when I'm worried and I can't see it, then I always say things that I don't mean. Or I make decisions about what I should do, or I make planning errors, just out of worry. You don't want to make your decisions out of worry. You don't want to make your decisions out of lust. You don't want to make your decisions from a place of avoiding what's unpleasant. And another is pain. And when I say pain, I mean emotional pain or physical pain. I don't really know if those things are any different, really. If you can't stay with your pain, you'll make decisions that you'll regret. That's why on the cushion, if you feel pain, you might think, this isn't a great retreat because I'm feeling a lot of pain. But actually, that's bodhisattva training. is to feel pain and get even closer to it and know what it's like to feel pain and just watch all the fantasies your mind creates around the pain. Mindfulness in the body teaches us how to breathe with pain. I always find it difficult when I feel pain to remember to turn back towards my body 
if you feel pain, a really good practice is when you inhale, you say to yourself, peace in. And when you exhale, you say, peace out. It's so soothing. When you inhale, you just say to yourself, peace in. And when you exhale, peace out. In Buddhism, there's a character called Mara. Mara is the personification of um, temptation. And um, Mara is also the energy that wants to close things down. And you can see Mara on retreat. Usually, whenever you start to have a little bit of opening, Mara is right there. Tempting you. Oh, you just had a really calm sit? <laughs> and then Mara shows up for the next sit. Yeah. The point is, when you sit, Mara is always really close by. And in his instructions on mindfulness of the body, the Buddha says... <clears throat> That when you lose mindfulness of the body, Mara gains a foothold. As soon as you're not mindful of what's happening in the body, Mara's right there. Temptation's right there. A hell realm is right there. Addiction is right there. Compulsion is right there. Neuroses is right there. Can you feel that? Can you see that? Like as soon as you're not in your breathing body, Mara's right there. But the Buddha also says that when there's mindfulness of the body, Mara is like throwing a string, a ball of string against a wooden door. Can you picture that? Ball of string being thrown in wooden door. Nothing happens. It can't like, there's nowhere for it to get in. So I'm not talking about the beauty of feeling pleasure. I'm not talking about the joy of union. I'm not talking about um, uh, just like appreciating something gorgeous. I'm not talking about like uh, being in love or any of these feelings. What I'm talking about is when it's compulsive, when it owns you, when there's grasping, you're not free. And probably... If you're grasping, you can't actually enjoy the pleasure of what the situation has to offer anyways. Because likely you're turning whatever you're experiencing into an object. So then you've separated. Does this make sense? So, on the one hand, um, Sheila refers to um, conduct. And in community, it's good to have rules. Don't steal, don't lie, be honest, etc. But they only go so far. The, the real uh, key in understanding this paramita is that the technique of embodying ethics is mindfulness of the body. This is my perspective. That mindfulness of the body is actually the key to examining your conduct. 
because most poor conduct comes when we lose mindfulness of what's happening in our body. And I think all of us know that the deepest vows that we live by are the really quiet, silent ones that we've made to ourselves in times like this. We're quiet, we're calm, and we think, what are my values? How do I want to live? So, let me read to you the five um, vows, the five trainings that we undertake in um, practice. The first is, um, I vow to cherish life. This is the precept of nonviolence. I vow to cherish life. Isn't that beautiful? This is the precept. This is a commitment to nonviolence. Not having the intention to hurt. Internally and externally. Number two. Being satisfied with what I have. This is the precept of not stealing. Being satisfied with what I have. Whenever I come on retreat... I start to get this feeling like I kind of have everything I need to practice. I always tell people once you need, once you have the, your basic needs met, uh, the only thing you need to practice is um, a nice floor. It's important where you live that there's some area where there's a really nice floor. That's all you need. I don't know what it is, but there's something about a nice floor that's really conducive to practice. Number three, um, I vow to respect others. This is the precept of not misusing sexuality. I might add, I vow to respect the dignity of others. So what does this mean? This means when sexual energy arises, feel it, breathe with it, embody it, know it, and then don't hold on to it. Don't hold on to it. Know how to allow sexual energy in and also know how to let it pass. And if you have a practice of celibacy, then the key to celibacy is... Um, Stay really warm. Some people can practice cel... I, I, I recommend this. Like, you should take, especially if you're a single person, don't practice celibacy in relationships. <laughs> this is called withholding. <laughs> and it's a form of violence. <laughs> I just came off retreat and I've decided we're not having sex anymore. <laughs> Great. Um, that it's good to take like three, four, five, six months and say, I'm not going to act on sexual energy in my body, in my speech, like flirting is an example, and in my mind. 
Not acting on it doesn't mean you're not going to allow it in. It just means you're not going to invest in it. And then you return to the realm of sexual energy and you, there's more space around it. And you might discover that without space around sexual energy, it's very repetitive and not creative at all. Or maybe it's not even relational. It's just like your ideas, your fantasies that have nothing to do with anybody else. Or someone else's fantasies that you can't relate to because you're not receptive. Because you can't feel sexual energy from another person, you see. Does this make sense? Fourth, listening and speaking from the heart. This is the precept of not lying. Listening and speaking from the heart. This is the precept of not lying, being honest. And last, I vow to practice clarity. This is the precept of not taking intoxicants. My definition of this is not ingesting anything that intoxicates your ego. Not ingesting anything that intoxicates your ego. It's great that marijuana is being decriminalized. People should not go to jail for possessing or distributing pot. But when I walk around in BC, especially in Vancouver and Victoria, and I see that there are more dispensaries than convenience stores, um, and then I multiply how many people live in the neighborhood, I start to think, everybody is stoned. <laughs> And I'm interested in a culture that's waking up, not in a culture that's high. And if you've spent time being stoned, you know, sometimes it's really relaxing. And if you're kind of amped up, it can like calm you down sometimes. And I'm not even going to talk about medicinal benefits. We all know that's accurate. But um, when you smoke pot a lot, um, it intoxicates your ego. It doesn't wake you up and doesn't create clarity unless you have a certain strain that I have never encountered. <laughs> so, um, the same is true with alcohol. There's nothing wrong with having a drink. Have a drink, that's great. But if you need to have a drink, it's not the same as enjoying a drink. Do you understand what I mean by that? And also, when we watch people who drink, we also see that the more they drink, the more you see their ego. <laughs> right? It actually reinforces the ego. That's not a practice of freedom. So this is where sometimes it's good to see, wow, I used to think that this was a set of rules, but now I see it's mindfulness of the body. Why am I drinking? Why am I smoking pot? Probably... There's something going on in my body right now that I can't bring mindfulness to. And then some more practice and support is required.
In long retreats like this, you might have the experience of sitting still and having a tough time sitting and maybe feeling some pain. And then suddenly the pain turns into something else. It can sometimes turn into pain about something you've done. Or it can turn into pain about something that's been done to you. When you sit carefully and you see if your mind is full of greed or anger or delusion, then you'll also see you'll have a miserable experience on your cushion. If you have a livelihood that requires a tremendous amount of greed in order to be successful, when you sit on your cushion, you will be tangled in that. If you have relationships that haven't been healed and you have a lot of resentment and a lot of anger, you will see that in your sitting practice. Not only will you see it in your sitting practice, you'll feel it in your body as pain. You'll literally hurt. And you don't need to study any texts on karma to understand that. Nobody gets away with anything. Any poor conduct that you have in your life, if you sit really honestly and really openly, you'll see that any poor conduct casts a darkness in your body and in your heart. And you'll feel it when you sit. So, again... Shila, paramita, moral conduct, comes from mindfulness of the body. That's the takeaway today. Yes, there are types of sitting where you can get into a trance state, and you can dissociate a little bit, and you can shut the world out. But that's not how I teach, and that's not what I encourage I want you to be open to what's moving through your heart moment to moment without closing in on yourself and without closing off what's moving through you. If you do trance meditation or you do uh, hallucinogenics or psychedelics, I think maybe morality doesn't really come into it so much. Or maybe the meditation is just about you and your experience. Did you just drift off somewhere? <laughs> like everybody's here and then I looked around and there was a lot of like... <laughs> Dogen, 13th century Zen teacher, he said something really, really beautiful. If you're not familiar with Dogen, um, he, uh, his parents died 
when he was young. And so he ordained when he was 13. Some of you may have heard me say this before, but I've, I've always found it really interesting that the leading teachers in these traditions that we draw on for our practice all had parents who died when they were small. The Buddha's mom died in childbirth. You just go through the list and everyone had one or two parents die before they were teens. It's said that uh, when Dogen was at his mother's funeral, he looked into the incense bowl on the altar while the incense was burning and he was hit with the intensity of impermanence. Can you relate to that? So anyways, Dogen, um, he studied in China because he thought the practice in Japan was a little bit superficial. He wanted to go to the source. And um, when he was practicing uh, with Rujing, his teacher, Rujing came over and gave instruction during meditation to somebody next to Dogen and said to them, drop away body and mind. Body and mind, drop away. And Dogen heard this and he had what he calls his awakening experience. I love this story because the instruction wasn't for Dogen. <laughs> it was for the person next to him. It's like someone saying, I'm in pain in sitting. Sarah, can you help me? And someone else hears Sarah's instruction, and then they become a bodhisattva. And they just start helping people. <laughs> Anyways, what, what, what he was saying to the person next to Dogen was, drop away, cast off your theories about your body and your mind, and sit. Just sit with what's happening, not with your idea of your body and your idea of your mind, but actually what's happening right now. Anyways, Dogen left China and went back to Japan. And all he taught after that was one teaching, which is that practice and awakening are one thing. You don't practice to wake up. We're already awake, and so we practice. It's really important. So your practice is awakening. They're not separate things. When you're practicing, you're awake. That's why we call it Buddha mind. Because what it means is, the Buddha is not this person on a, on a pedestal or a historical Buddha. Buddha mind is, as soon as you come back to the present moment and you feel that buzz of being here, that's the same mind as the Buddha. That's the mind of the Buddha, is your mind when you come back again. Like when you bow, in the moment at the bottom of the bow, which to me is the same as coming back to your breath, 
To me, that's the same technique. Like you wandered off, come back to the breath. When I bow, right at the bottom, I'm back. That's the Buddha's mind. It's exactly the same mind as the Buddha. The Buddha didn't have a different mind than that. That's the mind. And that's the quality of heart or the quality of mind that we're practicing with. It's innate in all of us. Practice and awakening are one. You're not practicing to get awake. You're practicing because you're awake. And when you're not awake, there's no practice happening. <laughs> so, my encouragement to you is to access this. Access this teaching. Let me end with Basho. The temple bell stops ringing, but the sound keeps coming out of the flowers. The temple bell stops ringing, but the sound keeps coming out of the flowers. Thank you for listening to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. If you like this podcast, you can support it by subscribing on iTunes or SoundCloud. Please take a moment to rate us and leave a comment. Your feedback helps to distinguish us from the pack. You can also support us by word of mouth. Tell a friend or send a tweet. Finally, please consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon at patreon.com forward slash Michael Stone. Even a couple of dollars a month will help us reach our goals. To learn about Michael's retreats and his online courses, go to michaelstoneteaching.com. Once again, that's michaelstoneteaching.com. With your support, we'll continue to build a community library about mindfulness and mental health that can be shared with the world. Thank you for supporting this community without walls.